Hello, and welcome to the first episode of Culture Conversations. Today we're going to be summarizing all of the exciting cultural moments from the summer of 2018. I'm Miranda Manier, a multimedia reporter for The Chronicle. I'm here with... Uh, Micah Thurston. I'm the advertising manager of the Columbia Chronicle. And I'm Mike Rundle. I am a staff photographer at The Chronicle. We are working with one microphone today, so forgive us for any audio problems. Um, so first, I want to talk about my favorite cultural moment from the summer, which was the HBO miniseries Sharp Objects. Um, it was based off of a 2006 book by Gillian Flynn. I think that's how you pronounce her name. Um, so basically, the, the, the book is about um, this reporter in St. Louis who gets called to write an article about several homicides that have happened in her hometown um, to, like, teenage girls, like 13, I think, um, have gone missing. One of them was found dead, and shortly after she arrives in her hometown, the second one is also found dead. Um, so the show was kind of being lauded for how it portrayed women because it was showing women to have the capacity to be really cruel and violent, which is not something I personally think I ever see on screen. Um, I it, it was showing women as like very layered, but like in a in a kind of twisted way. And so kind of the conversation was, is this like good representation? Is this something that we want to see? Because all of the women are kind of shown as very like cutthroat. Um, and people are saying like, well, that's not necessarily like how we want to see women portrayed, but I think that it's really interesting to show that women have the capacity to be just as cruel as men do. Um, I mean, cause that's, I, I just don't ever see that in media personally. What do you guys think? No, I think I would agree. Am I coming in? Okay. Like, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, sounds fine. No, I think I would agree, um, that that's definitely not something you normally see and, um, you know, coming from a male voice, it may be a little bit different. I don't know if um, it's necessarily m my observation to make. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I would agree with the fact that that's definitely not the type of um, representation you normally see of female characters in fiction or nonfiction stories. Yeah, I would agree as well. Um, something that I've noticed a lot in film and TV is that they're really uh, breaking down barriers and stereotypes and that um, we're getting a lot more um, diversity in characters, not just with like race and stuff like that, but even um, their personalities and kind of what their characters add to the show. So um, it's nice, I guess, to see women in uh, multiple lights and not just playing those stock characters that we've gotten used to. Yeah, I, I think that um, what really stood out to me was that it was kind of showing women, like, weaponizing the things that they're socially pressured to do. Like, for instance, um, the journalist's mother is shown to be this really, like, caring, doting, like, kind of sickly sweet personality. Um, and it was it was really interesting for me to see, like, how she kind of used this perception of her as, like, this harmless, sweet southern woman as a way to, I don't know, like, she just used that to her advantage and used it, like, as a way for people to sort of underestimate her, um, which I thought was really interesting because I just, I don't think I had ever seen anything like that where it's it's kind of letting the women um, 
use what we're being like I don't know we're using our stereotypes mm-hmm. to our advantage which is mm-hmm. I don't know I thought that was interesting mm-hmm. yeah it's kind of like taking back the tropes yeah. in a certain way um like kind of like taking ownership of that and using it um yeah like in it like and just flipping everything on its head and um using that as a more of a, a, a power thing than yeah exactly yeah yeah um, yeah, and then also, I, 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 yeah, I mean, I guess that's kind of, those are my primary feelings on it. There were a lot of interesting, um, well, I don't know. I, I think that a, a problem that I had with it was how it handled race, because it was taking place in, like, this small town in southern Missouri, and, like, it, it, I don't know. It was re- it's one of those things where it's like I guess this is an accurate portrayal, but it still feels frustrating because there were like four characters of color on the show and it was like all bit parts. One of them was a maid. Like it's one of those things where it's like I like I I understand why because like there was active overt racism in the show and it's like I I guess that's supposed to be accurate, but I it's like one of I I want there to be more, but I don't know how they, I don't know. It's a thing where like, I don't know how it's supposed to be handled or if it's being handled correctly or not. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I kind of want to connect that to Shameless. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel like, I mean, this is kind of off topic, but I feel like Shameless kind of does that too with the fact that it's a f- show that takes place on the south side of Chicago not only a historically black city, but also a historically black part of the city with one recurring black character, which is the little brother Liam, who was actually cut from the show. Yeah. So um, I guess that's something that um, is kind of expected of shows that have like white writers and white main characters. I feel like it's really hard still to have like um, a balance of diversity just because I don't, I don't, I don't know why there seems to be such difficulty to have, like, rounded characters of different racial backgrounds, but, um, I don't know, sometimes writers just seem like they're uncomfortable with doing that, yeah. so they s- just stay away from it. Yeah, it's like they're, they're thinking, oh, well, it's like, it's like that thing of, I feel like I'm not supposed to write for people outside of my mm-hmm. social situation, so I'm just not going to do it, which is kind of worse. Like, I understand not wanting to speak for a group that you're not a part of, but then, like, hire people who do have those experiences mm-hmm. and diversify your writer's room. Um, so that's our first topic. Micah, what do you have to bring? So um, since we're on the topic of race and um, white characters kind of dominating the screen, um, one of my favorite cultural moments from the summer of 2018 was the fourth installment of the film the purge film series um i honestly hope it'll be the last i feel like the movie has been the film series has been overdone how many times can you show people killing each other legally i mean they're making a tv series out of it now just just let it go guys but anyways so um (laughs) yeah they're making a film a tv series now it's gonna be a mini series so but i honestly don't know what angle they can take with it this time but anyway, so um, 
basically why the first purge, it came out July 4th, 2018. Um, the way that it was different from the other films that they've done for this series is that um, the first purge was the first purge film to ever have um, like black and brown characters as the central part of the story. Um, if you compare the first film that came out quite some time ago now, um, it was from the perspective of not only a white family, but a rich family, um, which was problematic in the sense that I feel like if crime was legal for 24 hours, it would probably affect low-income, impoverished neighborhoods more than it would more than it would affect high-income neighborhoods with amazing security systems, which is kind of the central part of the first film. Um, to give you some background, Ethan Hawking, he, is it Ethan Hawke? Ethan Hawke. Yeah. <laughs> he, he plays the main character. Um, he works for like this big security company that builds security systems specifically for the purge. So, you know, his family and him are completely set. You know, they have no worries about what um, is going to happen to them that night. Um, until they see a man, a black man running down the street, he's uh, covered in blood and he's running away from someone and, you know, they get their little white savior moment. They're like, okay, we should let him in. So then they let him in. Um, and then it just kind of follows them trying to find him in their house, despite the fact that he's actually not the criminal in plot twist. It's their rich neighbors that try to kill them. Ha ha ha. Anyway, so then for the first purge, um, it actually shows um it gets very political as well it takes a lot of jabs at donald trump and gop and um just kind of our current political climate with um the government taking advantage of impoverished communities and even mental health issues have you guys seen the film do you have any i haven't but i have i heard a lot of things about it mm -hmm. um yeah, I mean, what I had always heard about it was complaints that it was, like, showing the completely wrong side of what would actually be mm -hmm. happening. Um, and then I had seen some of the previews for The First Purge, and I, I think that what I heard around when it was coming out was, like, it feels like it's now commercializing, like, it's, it's capitalizing on, like, what is happening politically. And, mm -hmm. like, it, it, it wasn't showing that it had these views or like it, it it didn't have any political leanings until it became like a hot commercial commodity to have a like liberal mm -hmm. perspective i don't know i i think that that's that, that was sort of what i gleaned from like what was happening when it was coming out but i didn't see it so i don't actually mm -hmm. know too much about it no yeah you kind of hit the nail on the head with that 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 was one of my biggest problems with the film was that it like definitely took advantage and capitalized off of current situations because um, just for some like imagery, they had one scene where they had police officers shooting unarmed black people literally on a football field. What is wow. what does that relate to? Nailing. Cool. So they it was pretty. Uh, they went right in. They went direct. They had Black Lives Matter protesters in there. They had KKK members driving around terrorizing the black communities. Um, yeah, here's, here's... It was a lot. Here's <laughs> what that makes me think of. I mean, it's like when a show has a woman be raped 
and then it's showing her dealing with the trauma of rape. And it's like, you know, actually, like, showing that to people who are victims of sexual assault or sexual trauma, like, that isn't giving them representation. It's making them see, like, this visceral thing. Like, it feels more like it's for people who know nothing about those experiences Mm -hmm. to be like, oh, yes, I commiserate with this experience rather than actually trying to speak to and connect with the people who are actually going through that. Mm -hmm. That's that's what that makes me think of. I think one of... um, So I didn't actually like the film. I didn't think it was good at all. But, like, um, just the fact that they took this angle was nice, but also them capitalizing off it was a bit insulting. But at the same time, I think... One of my favorite parts about the film was that um, the whole time you were obviously rooting for the black and brown people because they were the good people in the film. They were just trying to survive the night and um, make it out alive and have each other's backs. But um, since this was the first purge, you knew how it was going to end and how how nothing was going to be okay. So that... Despite the fact that you continued to root for them, you knew what the outcome would be. And that kind of just added an, emo- an emotional aspect to it. Because um, when you look at, like, marginalized communities, well, at least for me as a woman of color, like, I'm obviously rooting for them. But it was just heartbreaking because, like, you just knew that no matter how hard they were fighting, they weren't going to win. So that was probably my favorite part of the film. Um was just that aspect of it. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds like I don't really need to see it. <laughs> um, all right. Well, moving on to Mike, what do you have? Okay. So to uh, change gears a little bit here, we're going to go into some music things. Completely. Um, <laughs> but um, so one thing, one interesting thing that I saw, um, so Sahil Chinoy and Jesse Ma of the New York Times recently released an article on how more recent songs of the summer have tended to sound the same. Um, So in the article, they used a chart measuring things like loudness, energy, danceability, et cetera. And they started measuring these qualities um, in the songs of 1988, the songs of the summer 1988. And it was very clear in all of their evidence that the songs were all very different and especially different genres. There's everything from uh, hip hop, R&B, um, to, you know, your hair bands um, that were considered the, the songs of the summer. Um, and some of the evidence they, they showed for the more recent songs uh, becoming the same was uh, the formulaic songwriting of people like Martin Sandberg or known popularly as Max Martin, um, who has 22 number one songs, which is incredible. Yeah. 22 number one hits. Um, and, but he's been on songs like Can't Stop the Feeling, um, California Girls, Can't Feel My Face. So, like, all of these songs that you're hearing on Top 40 Radio, he's consistently been behind. Um, but the, the evidence from summer 2018 is starting to show that there could be some more diversity coming back into how songs are written and how songs are performed. Um, two that stood out. Um, especially in this article where Post Malone's song uh, Psycho and Drake's Nice For What, specifically for um, things like downbeats and the the different ways they were performed and um, their lyrical, like not necessarily content, but um, how the songs were sung or rapped. Um, 
So something interesting that that brought up with me was that if this new age of diversity is coming back to music, um, who are going to be the front runners, and how do you think fans will react to new features, new crossovers, things like that? And like, I mean, like you had Florida Georgia Line doing like everything is something that immediately comes to my mind. Like whether or not like we think it's good, like it was <laughs> top forty forever. That's true. So I don't know. That's just something interesting to me is that it, with all of these crossovers, like, is there going to be a breaking point where everyone's like, all right, this is enough? Or is it just going to be like everyone supporting the art and just saying, go for it. We'll, we'll stream your music anyway. Sounds like a nice utopia. <laughs> what do you think, Micah? Um, I don't think so. <laughs> I mean, if you think about, like, just seasonality in general, um, I think music does change based on the season. Obviously, people will, like, release, like, really poppy songs during, like, the fall. But for the most part, the ones that are really, like, dominating the charts are, like, those twangy, like, dark songs. So same within the winter. But then, yeah, that's really interesting. I never really thought about that. But, um I personally am not a fan of pop, but I know that during the summer, pop dominates completely. That's the only time that I ever hear a Katy Perry song. Um, (laughs) All other nine months of the year, I hear, like, Ed Sheeran and, um, like, really sad rap songs (laughs) (laughs) and breakup songs and stuff like that, so... Everybody just everybody just lives for the summer nowadays, I guess. I don't know. But then going off of that is, like... Does genre exist anymore? Like, is genre becoming more specific? Is it more general, or like, is it just not even a thing? Like, that's that's what I say. Like, Florida Georgia Line. Like, you have like a, originally what was a country group, now with BB Rexa and this song that was so popular, and it's so weird. like, it's just like an interesting dynamic. Um, I think it was meant to be, wasn't it? Please sing it. Is it the if it's meant to be, you know, yeah, that, yeah, 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 you got it. Yeah, I know that song. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I just, what, so, like, what's the deal with genres? Like, it's so fluid anymore anyway. Like, where do you see it going? I don't know. I mean, I think that I probably, I would guess that there are still going to remain distinct genres because there are genres of music that I know absolutely nothing about. Like, for mm-hmm. instance, the current rock and roll scene, like, I am not familiar with it, but I, I know think... there are bands like no, Greta Van Fleet that are really big that I don't know at all. I just, I just recently got into them a little bit. So, yeah. it's, uh, my roommate is very close to them. It's a whole thing. But, like, I don't know them. Like, it's, mm-hmm. I, there are, like, landscapes of music that I'm just not familiar with. So I think the genre still exists, but it's just, like... In terms of popular music, I think that, like, hip-hop, pop, like, rap, trap has kind of... It's, like, starting to morph, I feel. Mm-hmm. Maybe just because people know that that's what sells. So, like, they know that they need to be able to kind of mm-hmm. do it all, I guess. And if they have the same producers producing for all of these big labels, like, that's probably a big part of it, I would guess. I had no... 22? That's yeah. insane. That is crazy. Yeah, 22, um, Max Martin is just pretty much monopolize the hit writing um, industry, I guess, if you want to put it that way. But yeah, no, it's like your example of Greta Van Fleet, like maybe that's somebody we'll see do a collab with Drake, something like that. 
Um, like I know a band called Bring Me the Horizon, um, notoriously like dark punk, like hardcore type music. Um, I believe just did a collaboration with Post Malone, whose favorite band is a band or rumored favorite band is Crown the Empire, who is notorious for being like post-hardcore metal music. So that's what I mean. It's like, it's just, everything is just so fluid. Yeah. And I think it's, for for me at least, I think it's really exciting to see, or to think about what could potentially be in the future of songwriting. Wow. Well, do you have more? Can I just say one more yeah. thing? Yeah. Um, I mean, if you think about it, I feel like without even just collabs, like, artists themselves switch up their genre sometimes because if you think about taylor swift she was a country singer and now she's a pop singer um we have i remember there was an interview with some country singer i don't remember his name but i know that everyone's in love with him but anyway he like did this video where he was reading drake lyrics out loud and he was like wait this is the top song right now is this what I need to do to get my music to sell, to write a rap song? Oh, man. So, I mean, um, yeah, I think that a lot of artists do take advantage of the, like, what's selling, what's, like, what's hot right now. Um, but then also artists just, like, I guess collaborate as well so that they don't have to change their sound, but they know that sounds can mix well. That's a good point. Yeah. Yeah, well, there you go. I think the main takeaway from this episode then is that all artists capitalize on political trends. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you so much for joining us for our first episode of Cultural Conversations. Excuse me. Um, come back to us next week when we talk about, hopefully, things that are not all amorphous political. Mike? No, wait. I just want to say, record that again so you can just, like, say cut in the clean... Yeah, that's a good point. Thanks for joining us for our first episode of Culture Conversations. Come back to us next week when we talk about more political, cultural happenings. (laughs) 